You're deep in the forest on an October evening. The leaves above you are red, orange, and golden yellow. Weak light filters through as the evening sun begins to set. Small water droplets drip off the leaves because it's recently been raining and you've come into the forest with a companion in search of fresh mushrooms. You work side by side, taking out tiny knives to slice the fungi at their base and put them into your woven basket. You're about to leave when your companion turns and sees a perfect circle of mushrooms in a clearing. Excited, she runs over to it, ready to harvest the bounty of the forest. You shout out a warning, but it's already too late. She stepped into the fairy ring and disappeared, never to be seen again. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And I'm Devin, and I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that explores the ritualized year, folklore, and history. And this week's topic is fall foraging. Now, yay! First rule of fall foraging is be careful, stay alert, stay safe. Don't step into fairy rings. But also, actually, you know, be careful out there if you do decide to do this. Know what it is you're picking. Yes. The main thing. Don't get mushrooms unless you're with somebody who is like an expert and knows exactly what it is that they're getting. And or if you're an expert and know exactly what you're getting. (laughs) That's the main one. All right. So I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's first back up a bit and talk about what exactly foraging is and why people do it. So like, obviously, if you are in a society that's based around hunting and gathering and foraging, it makes sense. That's your source of food. You go out and look for food. But why are people basically still doing this after settled agriculture becomes a thing? Glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) So, one is that there are just certain foods that are really difficult to maintain in, like, early agriculture or medieval agriculture. Even now, right, there's a reason that we don't really eat acorns as much anymore, because oak trees are hard to just, like, grow as a farm. Yeah, that <laughs> um, makes that makes sense. Just, like, an oak tree, uh, oak tree orchard yeah, is kind of tough to keep. It takes a time for them to get to a point where they're like seeding um and then the other thing is that it provides a more varied diet that allows you to get nutrients that you wouldn't be getting from just the staple crops that like a small village of people could maintain so right in the americas your staple crop was mostly corn but it needed to be substituted by other vegetables root vegetables and acorns and things because if you just eat corn you can get a disease called pellagra or pellagra anyway it's a vitamin b3 deficiency and 
it causes like skin lesions and gastrointestinal distress and dementia. It's actually a big problem for rodents that live in cornfields. They go crazy and eat all their babies. Oh. Yeah, it's real sad. <laughs> they were like, what's wrong with all these rodents? And then they figured out that they had this disease that uh, early white settlers used to get because they would just grow the corn and not realize that you can't eat just corn. So we'll talk about the other parts of indigenous diets later. Excellent. In this and how they supplemented other staple foods so that they weren't eating just corn. Yeah. And I guess the other thing to remember is that like early agriculture was a lot more precarious than agriculture now. So like if you had a harvest failure, if you had a crop failure, or for whatever reason you lost even some of your agricultural products, then that could very easily lead to famine. Um, So people kind of had to know what sort of bark and roots and leaves and berries Mm -hmm. or whatever were edible so that you could sort of supplement your diet through these difficult times. Yes. This is especially true in um, early New France. Yeah. There was a lot because Quebec is so sort of agriculturally tenuous. um, Yes. And a lot of the indigenous people, they did grow corns and various types of maize, but they also mostly hunted um, the early... French Quebecers uh, didn't, they mostly traded for like hunted goods. And when the crops failed, right. they were not in a great position. Right. So we're <laughs> going to talk today about, you know, sort of the folklore surrounding these sorts of practices and also go into a little more detail about what kinds of food and various ingredients you can find out in the woods and fields. And I think we should start out with mushrooms slash fungi. Because, you know, they're fun guys. (laughs) Good to have at parties. No. (laughs) I'm cancelled. Also, mushrooms are just nasty. They're so delicious, Devin. I don't know what you're on about. You've eaten my mushroom pierogies and liked them. I know. That's literally the only time I've eaten mushrooms and been okay with it. I really don't. They're like weird and spongy. I don't like them. Well, but that's why you cook them. They're still. That's why they're cooked. They're still weird. I don't wow. like it. That's why <laughs> I'm anyway, going to be how do talking about mushrooms. <laughs> that's what, Sound off on Twitter. Tell us which team you're on this week. <laughs> Team pro delicious nutritious mushrooms or team I hate nice things. <laughs> I will just say you will never find a mushroom at my house because truly tragic. JP also hates mushrooms. We will never to our JP match is made my in heaven partner by the way, Beyonce. Uh, there are no mushrooms allowed in this house. <laughs> Well, as soon as I'm back, you know what I'm bringing over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But anyway, this genuinely is the time of year to go foraging for mushrooms in the forest. And typically you do want to do it after it's been raining because when it rains, it gets nice and damp, you know, all the mushrooms sort of sprout up. 
And traditionally, you'd have families would kind of pass down this knowledge, both of identification, but also of which spots were good for mushroom hunting. So you would have these like closely guarded family secrets that you wouldn't reveal to anyone. Like, you know, if you go to this part of the woods, this is where you find the good stuff. They're also a nutritious food source. They provide a lot of vitamins and minerals, and they've also traditionally been used in different medicinal kind of soups and teas, and they can also be used in dyeing textiles. But the most interesting use, I think, has been mushrooms as a intoxicant, as a hallucinogenic. Because Those mushrooms I can get behind. There you, there you <laughs> go, Devin. I found a mushroom that you like. Kidding for the feds. We only endorse legal prescription drugs that are where you follow the prescription given to you by a doctor, Devin. Unless you're in Canada, in which there is recreation. I said legal. I said yeah, legal but you don't get a drugs. Prescription for it. That's fair. Anyway. So, for example, Siberians would consume certain varieties of mushrooms historically for these hallucinogenic and intoxicating properties, um, because it wasn't until much, much later on that they actually started brewing alcohol and creating other sorts of intoxicants. So, yeah, a lot of the, uh, particularly the mushrooms with little red caps, you know, little red caps with... Right, so also when you're looking at these hallucinogenic mushrooms at that point, a lot of them are the little red caps. So the ones mm -hmm. that are, you know, little red top on the mushroom with little white speckles. Yeah. So it seems like that's part of the reason that these, like that specific type of like toadstool um, also becomes associated with like magic and mystery and fairies Mario and such. Kart. I mean, that too. Hope they're not eating <laughs> the mushrooms and... <laughs> Poor toad! Right? <laughs> but also, mushrooms could be a portent of you know, death, fairies, doom. Because, Ooh. as the story suggests at the beginning of this podcast, um, fairy rings, so that uh, they're known as fairy rings or sometimes witches' rings, and they're these perfect circles of mushrooms that'll form on the grass. Mm -hmm. And it's basically just a naturally occurring phenomenon where they'll grow in a perfect circle. But people throughout Europe, especially Western Europe, have ascribed to these ideas that the mushrooms actually were marking where fairies or where witches had been dancing. And mm -hmm. stepping into them was seen as very dangerous. So the consequences could vary anything from falling asleep for many years to being kidnapped into the fairy kingdom and made into their slave. Um, but other times you would just be immediately injured or struck blind or face some other physical consequence like immediately for stepping into it so be careful out there when you're mushroom hunting 
Yeah, right, because these aren't the, like, cute fairies with little wings that we see now in, like, Hallmark shops. Yeah, no, They're, these like, are, like, the, the other world beings. Steal babies and impersonate them. Exactly. So this was very dangerous and to be avoided, if possible. Yeah. But I did, I do like in Lithuania, there's a kind of spooky, but also pretty wholesome idea around mushrooms. So they were believed to be the fingers of the god of the dead named Velnias. And he would put his fingers up through the soil so that poor people could rip off the mushrooms and eat them to sustain themselves. That is morbid. Well, yeah, but it's also kind of wholesome <laughs> I mean, I, that like, he's I, the god of yeah, the dead, like but he's, he's like, you don't... the poor people. Yeah, he's like, you don't but... have to go hungry in life. And then, you know, I'm... But also they have to eat his fingers. It, it's fine, Devin. He's a death <laughs> god. He's fine. He can... His fingers grow back. It's like when a lizard loses its tail. Not all lizards. <laughs> Hashtag not all lizards. Don't just cut off a lizard's tail. <laughs> Um. Cool. Yes, that is a that is a good story, though. Helping the poor is a good idea. That's what I'm saying, and I also like this idea of kind of a, a benevolent or somewhat benevolent death, death god. god. Yeah, this idea of a death that's inevitable, but also doesn't want you to suffer along the way. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to cool. You know, teas and tisanes. And medicinal yeah. ingredients. So the first one is rose hips, which are the fruit of rose mm -hmm. bushes. And they're kind of small, shiny, red, kind of circular, oval-shaped little fruits that appear, you know, after mm -hmm. all the rose petals have fallen off. And they have the rose seeds and also, you know, encased in a fleshy fruit. Yeah. And you can cultivate them, but they're also very common to be found, you know, growing wild in hedgerows and in woodlands and fields and that sort of thing. And they actually do contain a lot of vitamin C. Um, so mm -hmm. they're very, they actually are very good for you if you're eating a diet that's, you know, maybe not the highest in fruits and vegetables. So people would gather them even before knowing this kind of nutrition science because they kind of understood that okay if i take these and collect them and dry them out i can have this um you know this sort of fruit product through the winter yeah in the winter when you'd be eating a lot of like grains and meat stored meats exactly risk and scurvy mm -hmm. Fun fact, they can also be made into a very effective itching powder. So if mm -hmm. you dry them out and grind them up very fine, you can, you know, get get revenge on someone who's wronged you, I guess. The, this is not an instruction video, but, you know, you can <laughs> figure it out. But also, there is perhaps some evidence that they were seen as sacred um, because it seems like they at least in the early middle ages were made into rosaries hence the name rosary because rosary means rose garden or rose garland sorry or collection 
So oh, fascinating. There, there is some speculation that you know there was some connection there of you know stringing rose hips onto a string and then using that to count prayers because they were you know associated with good luck. And there's just sort of folklore Mm -hmm. more generally surrounding using them as good luck charms or as, you know, kind of protective amulets. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. And one last fun fact, uh, Hildegard von Bingen, just the most famous medieval abbess, basically recommended them for almost any ailment. Like if you had chest pain or kidney issues or just general malaise. Add some rose hips to that tea. You're gonna, you're gonna yeah. get better. It's gonna be great. And I mean, it it was probably it did at least get you some vitamins. Have a nice warm drink. Also, shout out to my current favorite musical person, Hildegard right von Blingen. Von Blingen. Check her out if you're into <laughs> bardcore. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And now, here's another, like, tea-making plant that Devin actually told me about. It's goldenrod. Yeah, because it grows everywhere in North America. You can... We found it, oh, because we went camping. Socially distanced. it was just all over our... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't want us to get canceled for, you know, going camping. Well, it was also with our... Pandemic pod. Pandemic pod. When those were allowed. Yeah, when we were allowed to see six people. And it it wasn't even six of us who went. No. Uh, I mean, now we're back in, like, a semi-lockdown. But anyway, we saw lots of goldenrod there. Tons of goldenrod, yeah. And you can make it into a good tea. Um, yeah, and use it for all sorts of things. It's um, it's a good dye. Uh, well, so generally any sort of aromatic plant, something that has a lot of like scent, will work as a, a decent dye, um, depending on what kind of, of plant it is, whether or not it has tannins in it will depend on whether or not you need a mordant before you use it to like secure the dye into the fabric yeah that makes um, sense but yeah goldenrod makes a, a really lovely the flowers um make a really lovely yellow if you're using it to dye fabric yeah also this is a this is an american fact that i found yes. and it's Apparently, it used to be a super popular tea substitute in colonial America for people who were maybe poorer or like were had run out of tea, and also during the Revolutionary Period in America yeah. because you, when you were boycotting, yeah, because you had to boycott the tea, <laughs> so you had to find something else to drink, and they were like, "This is great," because there was a tax, there was a, a high tax on tea. In terms of modern taxation, it wasn't actually that high, but whatever. Wow. It's... <laughs> Actual monetary income was also much lower, yeah. so any sort of tax was often difficult to actually pay. Anyway. So what other things can uh, can one forage 
for great question for Devin super <laughs> I know I'm really We're... like asking the <laughs> got my finger on the pulse asking the questions that people want to know that's right well I think kind of our investigative last journalism kind of subject of this pod is various you know nuts and fruits of trees I guess that can be Forged. The bounty of the woods. Exactly. The trees, they giveth and they taketh away. When they fall in the forest, can you hear them? Do they make a sound? <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes, they make a sound. You know, there is a... Uh, people sometimes talk about... <laughs> God. <laughs> I... <laughs> the trees in the old Buckleberry Wood. Trees that can whisper, talk to each other even move <laughs> i'm keeping that in <laughs> no, i think you should no i just i always get salty about the whole if there's no one to hear the tree in the forest does it make a sound i'm like yeah of course oh, it I does that's physics like, real angry about ants oh no i love ants <laughs> really we need more ants in this world if only they could find the ant lives they can't find them. I don't remember what they look like. <laughs> Sonia, have you ever seen? Have you seen an ant wife around? Mm, I don't know. What do they look like? <laughs> we don't ever. <laughs> Big yikes. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about chestnuts. So wild chestnuts okay. have been gathered since prehistoric times in Europe and in Asia Minor. And then chestnut trees were domesticated and added to orchards in antiquity, but obviously they still also grew wild. And especially through the Middle Ages, chestnuts actually became a staple foodstuff. And they were called the bread of the woods. Because, yeah, because you can actually grind them up and make, um, make like a type of flour to to make bread with during times of you know grain shortages and also you know it's you can also just eat them pretty much as they are you know the whole like chestnuts roasting on an open fire so the christmas yeah so you can just roast them and just eat them as they are and you know they're nuts so they're obviously very packed full of protein and you know good nutrients and fats but also the chestnut tree was actually joined by the oak tree in monastic gardens in this period and now we can talk about acorns acorns Acorns. anyway i can talk about (laughs) acorns you know for a very long time and oak trees more generally they're historically one of the most sacred trees at least throughout Europe. So the Greeks dedicated these trees to Zeus and the Romans, you know, took that and did the same thing and dedicated the oak tree to Jupiter. And Teutonic tribes considered it to be the tree of life. The Celtics thought it was the celestial tree. And for the Norse, the acorns were both an important food and a symbol of fertility and immortality. So it's, again, something that you could wear as sort of an amulet or good luck charm for immortality. 
and also fertility. Fertility. Fertility, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) However, as we see this move to the Middle Ages where Europe becomes more and more dependent on cereal grains, acorns really drop in prestige to the point where they literally just become food for pigs. So this is the time of the year when you would take your pigs into the woods to forage for acorns, um, which helps to fatten them up so that they're ready for slaughter in, you know, sometime in November, maybe December at the latest. And then you would cure all that meat and eat that through the winter to be able to sustain yourself. So, you know, bit of a bit of a fall from grace, but the acorn kept kept up its importance in some ways but i think in the americas it was much more important for much longer yeah well so there wasn't um as many types of cereal grains right in north america there were various types of maize but as we spoke about at the beginning um just eating maize and corn is uh or corn is not always like super healthy um, if you're not substituting it with a significant portion of other vitamin-rich foods. Right. Um, so acorns were really important also because uh, corn crops could fail. And if you look at uh, corn versus acorns, like per gram of food, you actually get more calories and uh, like fats and vitamins from an acorn, like more nutrition from an acorn than from corn. Um, right, that makes sense. It's just sense. that acorns are an incredibly, so like they're very nutritiously dense, but they're also incredibly labor intensive to be able to eat them because so they're in the hard outer shell, right? And I'm assuming everybody who's listening has like cracked open an acorn. What you eat is the orange part, the meaty part on the inside. But in order, it's it's incredibly, incredibly bitter. So in order to eat it in any sort of way, mostly what you do is, you know, crack it open, take out all the orange insides, take out all the orange insides, um, and then you would have to boil it for a long period of time. And then you could either dry that out and right. grind it into a flour, or um, you could cook it into a soup with like a squash or potatoes or something like that to add this like vitamin uh to it you can also use it for a dye um it makes a like pretty orange brown rusty color but again it doesn't have tannins in it so it doesn't last super long you need a really good mordant to keep it in the fabric um but so acorns were uh they were used by a lot of indigenous people and then by early settlers um because they could be stored up for long periods of time because they had that outer shell so you could like store them away but again it was really really labor intensive so for um famine years it can also be really difficult to if you're already like really really hungry to do all of the work and wait to make that so um And, you know, Europeans coming from the culture of, like, well, we don't really want to eat acorns. It was mainly used in the, for the settlers that had more of a, like, 
relationship with indigenous people, so not the English, because they were more about the murder. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that's, that is how <laughs> this podcast always goes, Devin. We're having a chat about, like, having a having fun a little fun chat talk. about fairies yeah, and, and stuff. Then, and like, then, the and then the murders began. The murders. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. yeah. So, the, I have a, a lot of text about like the French priests and stuff uh, having stores of acorns right. um, because they were much more dependent on indigenous people for a, a longer period of time um, and were much more involved in the lives and culture of indigenous people because they had like this bent on conversion. Um, whereas the English were like, we just want to set up our little Puritan towns and not talk to anybody. And if they come near us, we're going to murder. Um, but yeah, so acorns were used that way and had been used for generations all across um, North America to make flowers, to make types of breads and soups and just sort of fortify. Like it was used as like a thickener in soups um, to sort of add to how full you would feel when you ate, ate it. And then later, you know, once the United States is a thing, it was used along with hickory uh, as a coffee substitute. It is really gross. <laughs> um, so uh, when the the Civil War... So by the time of the Civil War, right. Right, right. we'd already been through this tea blockade, and the states in particular were... It had moved over to a coffee coffee culture as opposed to a tea culture. So sort of like rolling back the time on the British. So the British had been a coffee culture then because they were able to get this trade with China became a tea culture, right? So then the U.S. was tea culture and then it became coffee culture. But when the, uh, the Civil War started, there was a blockade on uh, the port of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, so they couldn't get anything in, and coffee is obviously an import, so they weren't getting coffee into New Orleans. Um, so they started, m- most of the South was blocked off. There's also blockades in Charleston. So in order to sort of stretch coffee supplies, they started filling them with other things that were not caffeinated, but still, like, it gave you the illusion of drinking coffee. Right. Um you know, anything where you're sort of boiling water is a, a good idea, especially when you're in the middle of a war. So they were filling it with acorns, which, you know, you would roast in the way that you would coffee. Um, and also uh, various types of hickory bark. Um, hickory is also the plant that pecans come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, pecans are a type of hickory. But the the hickory bark is, is another thing. So that's also... F- foraged um and if you go to louisiana now um they still you can still get hickory coffee it became really popular so if you go to the i think it's called cafe du Mont, which is the big cafe that is on all the advertisements for uh new orleans right um the coffee there is still roasted with hickory i don't particularly like it but it's like a big thing and that came from the um, blockade there's also a few other things that were used as coffee substitutes corn flowers 
little blue flowers. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, acorns. But yeah, and it's a big thing. And it became sort of a, that hickory coffee became sort of a thing across all of like French-speaking North America. You can get it in Quebec as well, which I thought was very strange when I came to Canada. I was like, why is this here? Because in the States, it's pretty much just Louisiana. It's this, you know, yeah. you bring it back in the Café de Montcap cans. When you go to Louisiana and you're like, look what I brought you guys, hickory coffee. And everyone's like, why would you bring me this? <laughs> but you can you can buy it here too. Yeah. You can buy it in Quebec as well. No, and it's interesting you bring that up as like... Um... I just thought of this now, but kind of going back to the rose hips thing that um, in war times, people are using these foraged goods to replace different drinks and to replace yeah. different different foods because um, rose hips were also very popular. Uh, I guess not popular, but like, um, you know, they were they were used by people in Europe throughout World War Two, right? Because you'd have these rations and you maybe weren't quite getting the same amount of food and the same amount of tea and coffee that you would normally drink. So a lot of people actually turned to rosehip teas because they knew that it was super nutritious. So, you know, it was something, you know, it was a little extra nutrients to get you through the day. And also it would kind of stretch out your tea supply or your coffee supply so that, you know, if you want, you could still have this warm drink without, you know, using up your rations. Yeah, and I mean, going back to, like, why do people forage that we asked at the beginning, war is a major component of yes, um, because it's a major disruptor of agriculture, creates massive famines, and one of the things that people can rely on is, is foraged food to either supplement, you know, in the way of like stretching out teas or coffees yeah. or just to replace entirely um, another good or commodity. Yeah, exactly. And to like, and to, to turn to things like if, if you were usually relying on, you know, manufactured dyes or indigo or something like that, you might um, turn to more locally sourced dyes for home goods and things like that um, for, when there's medicine shortages turning to homeopathic remedies for like small ailments, minor ailments are other, other reasons for things like that. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's also a similar reason as to why there's like a cornbread as we know it in North America is a mix of cornmeal and like wheat flour. Right. Yeah. Which is different from like a traditional indigenous Corn breads bread. made from corn, yeah. which are, are much denser and usually fried, um, like a fry bread. Uh, the cornbread that like settlers make is a combination. No, that's that's not foraged. It's just another substitute because it was hard to get a wheat crop going right. enough. No, and I think this is definitely, you know, something that if if you're interested in getting into. You know, it's the the mushroom thing aside. I mean, the rest of it is relatively easy a, to identify. Find a person to take you out. Yeah. Don't go out with just books no. or mushrooms. No. It's not a good idea. Too many of them look too similar. Yeah. And the thing is, there are in a lot of places, like local organizations that do go out for like foraging and, yeah, you know, looking 
you know, or trips to the woods and that sort of thing. So if it's something you're interested in, I would say give it a go. But, you know, yeah. obviously be careful out there. Don't get stolen by the fairies. Don't eat toxic things. Yes, don't do any of those things. But definitely forage. It's an excellent way to subvert capitalism, which is a message we have to have in every single one of these episodes. Well, that's very true, Devin. If we don't have that in an episode... I mean, assume that this is... What are we even doing? Well, I was going to say, you know, if an episode ever comes out of this where we don't have something like that in it, you can assume it's like an attack of the body snatchers situation. Like, you know, it's not actually us recording. Foraging, an excellent way to not buy food. Exactly. (laughs) And also, Um, you know, just an excellent way to feel... A bit more connected with the passage of time and the earth and the seasons and feel, you know, feel a little bit, you know, step outside of this very, like, everything is the same all the time monotony that I think we've gotten into, especially this year. I think really focusing on that seasonality can, can still at least help make it feel like there are still nice things in the world. They're still good yeah, in this the world. the trees outside my apartment are freaking me out. Why? What have they <laughs> done? Like, well, they turned orange in, like, the course of two weeks, and now all the leaves are gone. Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, this is the only thing marking the passage of time from here, these trees. That's fair. Um, now we're entering the cold, long, cold, dark months. But that's okay, because we're going to have lots of episodes about assorted rituals, folklore, and holidays coming yeah, at you. We're getting to, we're getting to all of the, the holidays, the light and the darkness. Exactly. Holidays. But first, the darkness. The spook. Next time, we're talking about witches. What, what, like, witches? Well, I mean, not like witches today. We mean like, to, to be clear. Historical yes, witches. Yes, historical witches. Yes. See y'all next time. Uh, don't forget to don't forget to uh, like and subscribe. And if you can uh, support us on Patreon, we would really, really appreciate There's it. There's exclusive merch on Patreon. It's exclusive real cute. Merch. has the little Baba Yaga house all over it. It's really cute. I love it. And until next time, as Sonia said, do good work. Stay safe, y'all. See you next time. Bye-bye.